of prayer. God, you are good, and Lord, you are worthy of our worship. Father, we are so thankful that you see who we are, that you ordained it, that you would send your son to die for our sin. So, Father, we thank you for your great love and your amazing grace, which you have bestowed upon us. Lord, help us to see your truth and hear from your word this morning. Anoint the lips of your servant that I would preach only your kingdom truth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as some of you know, I, I did indeed welcome my son uh, into the world uh, in November, and I was thinking about um, our first Christmas together. Some of the things that uh, I wanted to do with Theo, Theophilus, Theo, um, in our first Christmas, and making some of those first Christmas memories. Obviously, he's not going to remember very much, but I was also thinking about some of my memories as a young child, and some of my favorite memories were uh, when I would get up in the morning, and I knew there were all these presents under the tree, and I would run down the stairs, and I would get down to the tree and see all these presents, and then what would we do? We would, what, look at them and like be like, ooh, look at this bow on this one. Oh, ooh, look at the size of this one. Ooh, look at the wrapping on this one, right? No, of course not. No way. No child goes down to their presents and goes, oh, this one is gold. It's nice. Let's just stare at it. Beautiful. Right? Every child, except for me, I had to very carefully take off the wrapping paper because my mom wanted to reuse the wrapping paper. But anyway, most other children, they get down there and they go, I just want to see what's on the inside. Because we all know, with, especially with gifts, it's what's on the inside that counts. And that's our big idea this morning. It's what's on the inside that counts. And we're going we're gonna, to we're, we're gonna unpack what that means through the genealogy of Jesus Christ, starting in Matthew 1. What I'm going to do for us this morning is, I know we often like to skip genealogies, but what I'm going to do for us this morning is I'm going to intentionally slow us down, and we're going to take time to read the genealogy that Matthew put together for us, because he didn't do it for no reason. He did it for a very specific reason to tell you something about who Jesus is. Because genealogies provide us context for the people that we're being introduced to. Also, in Romans 8.17, it says that we are spiritual co-heirs with Christ. So not only does Jesus' genealogy provide us context for who he is and God's narrative in the, in the Bible, his overarching narrative in the Bible, it also provides us context for our own spiritual genealogy. If we are spiritual co-heirs with Christ, his genealogy tells us who we are spiritually. So, let's get started. In Matthew 1, verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Pause right here. Pause right here. Anytime you're reading a genealogy in the Old Testament and you come across a woman's name, you need to pause. Because women, unfortunately, were often 
passed over in genealogies. They were often skipped over in genealogies, so in, especially in uh, biblical genealogies. So if you see a woman's name, the author is trying to remind you of something because clearly he's, he started a pattern here. He just goes from father to son to father to son to father to son, right? But here is the combo breaker, Tamar. He stops and mentions the name Tamar. Now, if you remember back to Genesis 38, when we're introduced to the character of Tamar, we are introduced to Tamar as Judah's daughter-in-law. She is married to his oldest son, whose name is Er. Now, Er dies without leaving any heirs, ironically. Uh, (laughs) Bad joke, dad joke, I'm practicing. Uh, So, Uh, He dies, Er dies, without any children. So here's Tamar without any children. And it is the responsibility of Er's younger brother, Onan, to now have a child with with Tamar so that Er's line could be continued. So that child that Tamar and Onan would have would not be counted to Onan, but rather would be counted to Er. Now, Onan is clever. He knows that if he does not provide a child for heir, right, then he actually receives the inheritance that was due to heir. Tamar gets nothing. But if he provides a child for Tamar, then he loses that double portion of inheritance that he's supposed to receive. So what does he do? He refuses to provide a child for Tamar. And God sees this. And God strikes him down. So he's dead. Now Judah has a third son. His his name is Shelah. And when Shelah comes of age, he is supposed to tell Shelah, you need to have a son with Tamar. But seeing as as his son Er has died, his oldest, and now his son Onan has died, his second oldest, Judah is not so keen to provide Tamar with a third son. He drags his feet. He procrastinates. He ignores Tamar. So Tamar then deceives Judah into thinking that she is a prostitute, and he tricks her, uh, or she tricks him into having a child with her, and eventually she actually does conceive twins, here uh, Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Now, in this way, Tamar claims what was owed to her. In fact, this is an incredibly scandalous story, right? Nobody here comes out looking good, right? Judah, terrible. Onan, terrible. Uh, Tamar, mm, not so nice. Very questionable characters in this story. Yet here is Matthew specifically mentioning Tamar by name. The question is, why does he do this? He could, he could have very simply just passed over this story, right? Being like, ah, that's kind of a uh, not-so-good part of Jesus' genealogy. Let's skip over it. But he does not do so. He does actually spend a little bit more time talking about Tamar. He actually mentions both the sons. And he, the reason he does this is because he's telling us that God is not ashamed of the people in his family or their past. God is not ashamed of who you are this morning. 
God, in fact, sees who you are, very specifically remembers who you are, and is ready to welcome you into his family this very morning. We're going to see how that plays out as we continue on in verse 5. It says, if, if we skip a couple generations here, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Again, we must pause. What does he mention here? He mentions, in fact, two women. Two very special women, in fact. First, he mentioned, mentions Rahab. Now, if we remember all the way back now to Joshua 2, we're really doing kind of an Old Testament overview this morning. If we remember back to Joshua 2, Rahab is a prostitute woman who is not just of non-Israelite um, non-Israelite heritage. She is actually of enemy heritage. She is of Canaanite heritage. And what she does is help the spies of Israel who are about to invade her very city. She hides them because she acknowledges that the God of Israel, Yahweh, is the God of the world, that, that he is the one true God. And she is actually very special in this in the Old Testament. There are only three characters in the Old Testament that express loyalty and their whole undying loyalty to the God of Israel, Yahweh, as the one true God. There are many characters who say God is powerful, God is this, God is that, that are not Israelites, but there are only three that are non-Israelites that express sole loyalty to the God, Yahweh. And that would be, first, the very first one is Rahab. Rahab, who is somebody of questionable moral character. Remember, she is not only just a Canaanite, but she is also a prostitute woman. Moving on then, we we see that she has a son, Obed, who is then married to Ruth. Again, another woman of not Israelite heritage. Yet he specifically, Matthew, the narrator, mentions Ruth, the Moabite woman, who traveled from far away because she expressed loyalty to the God Yahweh. What's interesting here is that Obed would have been intimately familiar with his mother's story, and so he would have been very familiar with how Ruth feels coming from such a faraway place. Yet here, Matthew is mentioning her by name, even though it would be shameful for somebody to have a mixed uh, background, somebody to have non-Israelite blood in, in their background, here Matthew is specifically mentioning two non-Israelite women because God redeems all people. Again, it's what's on the inside that counts. And here are two women who express faith in God, special women. The first was Rahab, the second Ruth, and the third is Naaman. So two of the three characters that, that are not Israelites, that express faith in Yahweh alone, Rahab, Ruth, right here in uh, Jesus' genealogy. And the third person I want to highlight as we go on this morning is found in verse 6. It says, And Jesse, the father of David, the king, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, 
If you are an ancient Israelite listener, listening or reading this um, genealogy, you would need no reminder as to who fathered or who mothered uh, Solomon. But here, Matthew takes a special moment to mention Bathsheba. However, he does not do so by name. And he very well could have. It's, it's very easy for him to just write Bathsheba. But instead what he does is say the wife of Uriah. Now we often think about David as kind of the Teflon man, the non-stick man. Everything that David does turns to gold. Nothing ever bad sticks to David. But here is Matthew reminding us of the one time that he screwed up royally. He really messed up in this circumstance, and he does so by saying, the wife of Uriah. He is reminding us of the time that David coveted Bathsheba. David lusted after Bathsheba. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. David then tried to lie his way out of his sin. David tried to cover it up, and when he could not cover it up, He murdered to cover his sin. He murders Uriah. That's who David is. And here is Matthew reminding us exactly who David is. Instead of reminding us of all the glorious golden years of David's reign, here is Matthew reminding us of the lowest of lows. And why is that? Again, it is because God is not ashamed of the people in his family. He's telling us, Matthew is telling us, that God isn't ashamed of who you are. God sees your sin and is ready to welcome you into his family. Because it's what's on the inside that counts. There are a couple application points that I want you guys to remember as we go through these names. The first is that God sees our sin, yet he decides to use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. God decides to use imperfect people to accomplish his perfect purposes. This means four things for us. First, that there isn't a level of goodness or holiness or righteousness that you you need to be at in order for God to accept you. If you have not accepted God this morning. If you are not part of God's family this morning, do not feel like you need to attain a certain level of holiness or experience points before God is ready to accept you. God is ready to accept you just as you are. The second thing this means, that there is no level of experience you need to attain before joining a team and serving in his kingdom. God does not say that I will only use people that look this good or behave this way. Nope. God is ready for you to serve in his kingdom just as you are. When you are part of his family, you are ready to join a team. The third thing that this means is that there is not a level of readiness you need to be at before engaging with your my four. What is my four? If you have been attending Springville for the last eight months, ten months, uh, you've heard us talking about this idea, my four. My four is where we have, uh, we've been praying for 
four people in our lives that we are intentionally doing three things for. We are interceding for, praying for, investing in, and inviting to church. Essentially, we are bringing the gospel very intentionally to four people in our lives. Four people. So there is not a level of readiness you need to be at before engaging in the three eyes for your my four. We often feel like, ah, I don't, I don't know if I'm ready to share the gospel, or I, I don't know if I have it all correct, A to Z, that, that nothing could be further from the truth. God is calling you to intercede for, invest in, and invite your my four to church today. This very day, God is calling you to do that. And the fourth thing that this means is that we need to be transparent about our sin. There is no use hiding your sin. Notice how Matthew is very upfront with the sin. He reminds us of Tamar. He reminds us of Rahab. He reminds us of David's lowest of lows. Here is the sin of the people laid out bare before us right here at the beginning of the book through the genealogy. That is the context for why we need Jesus. That is the very context for who we are as spiritual people. We need Christ. And when we repent, when we ask for forgiveness, this leads to sanctification. Sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the process of being made more and more like Christ. And that only starts with repentance. So sanctification leads us closer to him. And that's a benefit of your repentance. But the second benefit of your repentance that is that it is not just for you. This morning, this very morning, we saw two steps, or two people take steps of faith in baptism. As we are sanctified, as we walk closer and closer with Jesus, we also encourage others to walk closer and closer with Jesus. Witnessing a baptism is one of the most encouraging and edifying things for us as believers, as we see more and more people join the family of God. So it is not just for you. Your sanctification, yes, your sanctification ultimately is your walk with God, but it also encourages others to come alongside, and they are also encouraged in their sanctification journey. It's also why we do things like share our stories on encounters. So if you have an encounter where you met with God and you are walking with God and God is doing something in your life, this is why we share those stories. Now, as we move on in the genealogy, I want to highlight something that is a little bit easy to miss as you're skimming over these names. And that's found in verse 8. It says, And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Now, on the surface, this might seem like, you know, run of the mill, same thing, same pattern, but I'm going to read it for you one more time. He does something very, uh, very subtle here, but it's very important. One more time. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. I know you would catch it. It was so obvious. He skips three kings between Joram and Uzziah. You knew this. Everybody knew this, right? We all knew this. No, I I did not know that. I had to look that one up. But he does indeed skip 
three kings between Joram and Uzziah. He skips Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah. Why does he do this? Now, indeed, it is common practice in biblical genealogies to skip a generation here and there. However, he skips three generations back to back to back. And this is slightly atypical because he's making a point. Now, an Old Testament ancient Israelite would, in fact, pick up on this if they were very well-read. And many of them were very well-read because they would have, as, as young boys, memorized large portions of the Old Testament. And so they would say, oh, you missed something there. You skipped a couple. You did indeed skip Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah. And what he's doing is saying two things with his uh, omission. The first thing that he is saying is that if you know, uh, if, if you remember these stories, he's saying that Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah were particularly evil kings of Judah. He's omitting them because of their wickedness. He is saying that their reigns were marked by wickedness, disobedience, and ultimately unrepentance. He is saying that these three kings have no part in the family of God because of their unrepentance. However, the second and even more interesting thing that he says about, that he's saying here is that he is acknowledging what happened back in, uh, back in 2 Kings 10. In 2 Kings 10, it is prophesied that four generations of, the, of, of King Ahab's uh, descendants would not sit on the throne of Israel. Of Israel, okay? So what does the kingdom... Remember, we're tracking the, uh, the line of the kingdom of Judah here. What does the kingdom of Israel have to do with the kingdom of Judah, right? These are not the same people. Because indeed... Uh, after Ahab comes Jehu. Jehu is totally separate from Ahab. But what we ha- what, what's easy to miss is that actually King Joram marries the daughter of King Ahab, Athaliah. So she has a son. His name is Ahaziah. Then it's Joash. Then it's Amaziah. So starting with Athaliah, one. Ahaziah, two. Joash, three. Amaziah, four. Four generations shall not sit on the throne. And this is what Matthew is saying. Because of Ahab's wickedness, four of your generations shall be cut off from the family of God. Here is Matthew acknowledging that promise, that four of your generations shall be wiped out because of not only their wickedness, but also the wickedness of their forefathers. Because of unrepentance, they are excluded from the family of God. Conversely, if we go down to verse 10, it says here, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And I was corrected on my uh, pronunciation of Manasseh earlier. I didn't like the way I was pronouncing Manasseh, so I'll say Manasseh. Manasseh, if we remember back to 2 Kings, is one of the most wicked kings there ever was. If we thought Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah were wicked kings, well, Manasseh was even worse. So why is Manasseh included? In fact, Manasseh, he brings back the Baals that were abolished in Judah. And not only does he bring back the Baal, Baal worships and idol worship, he sets up those altars in the temple of Yahweh. He literally takes 
what they were not supposed to do and puts it in the place of what they were supposed to do. And he puts those altars in the holy of holies, the place that was supposed to be the most holy, Manasseh defiles. He says, Fui spits upon your temple, Lord. Not only does he do this, he takes it a step further. He, he consorts with fortune tellers. He deals with omens and mediums. And he even goes as far as to deal with necromancers, people who speak to the dead. And he takes it a step further. He sacrifice his, sacrifices his very own son. He practices child sacrifice. This guy is more evil than anybody who came before him. In fact, in 2 Kings 21, it says, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. Emphasis on very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. Besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. We often think about The Canaanites or the Moabites as evil people? Well, here is Manasseh even more evil than everybody who came before him. The worst king ever. And here he is in the genealogy of Jesus. Why? 2 Chronicles 33, 10 through 13 gives us our answer. It says, The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the armies of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. That is the last thing we hear about Manasseh. And what an amazing end to a terrible, terrible story. Here is Manasseh, the worst of the worst kings. Yet at the end of his life, at the end of his reign, he repents. He humbles himself greatly before the Lord, and he knows that the Lord is God. Not only does God restore him to Jerusalem, but also God restores him right here to his family. What does this tell us? It tells us, first, that our adoption into the family of God begins with our repentance. But second, it tells us that there is no way that you could fall so far as to be outside of the incredible grace, the amazing grace and deep, deep love of the Father. When we say that God loves you, here, right here in the genealogy, he's telling you how very much. Deeper than all of your deepest sins, his grace covers all of it. There is no way you could fall outside the love of God, if you are ready to humble yourself and repent and ask him for his forgiveness. 
It starts with A, B, C. First, it starts with acknowledging that you are a sinner. B, believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And C, choosing to follow him daily. A, B, C. That simple. And you are in the family of God.